Fundraising everywhere. 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 You need to add me in there. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. It's really great to have you here. Now, forget everything you think you know about pirates. Painted as rogues and villains by history and Disney, they were in fact social revolutionaries of the 1700s. They didn't just break all the rules, they rewrote them entirely and pioneered some radically progressive new ideas. We were really thrilled to be joined by Alex Barker at last year's Charity Leadership Festival. And Alex leads Be More Pirate, a social movement and training organisation that supports people to challenge the status quo and rewrite their rules. And in this episode of the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, we're going to be looking back at that session. What you'll learn in this session is why rule breaking serves the greater good. What the pirate code as a blueprint for better leadership and culture really is. How to explore the edges of your map and the power of small, bold actions. I really, really enjoyed this one. I'm sure you will too. If you want to hear more great leadership content, do check out this year's Charity Leadership Festival via our website. Without further ado, Alex, over to you. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Alex Barker and welcome to How To Be More Pirates. I'm going to start our session today um, with a picture of me in my probably my re- most rebellious moment to date. This is me, aged eight, at my first pirate party um, when I decided to go dressed as a mermaid. I really remember this moment because I was adamant I didn't want to go dressed as a boy. And so I asked my mum to make me a homemade costume, which she gladly did with her kind of old school sewing machine. The serious point behind the picture, fun as it is, is that despite my costume, I am probably the most pirate person at the party. Because if I were to sum up Be More Pirate in just one sentence, it would be giving yourself permission to break a few rules, to have some agency in a situation, um, to go your own way. And here I clearly am going my own way. However, I think for me it went um, largely downhill from here. I definitely wouldn't describe myself as a rebel, a rule breaker, or anything to that effect. Um, In fact, I was pretty good at following the rules and ticking boxes. I actually worked for 10 years in the charity sector before I started Be More Pirate. For seven of those years, I worked here at the RSA in London. Long title, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. That's a bit of a mouthful. Um, The RSA is a 260 year old society turned social innovation charity. So It is a charity and does lots and lots of different social research projects, um, looking at how to solve things like education and public services and all kinds of things. However, over the seven or so years I was there, I became increasingly disillusioned, skeptical and burnt out um, by the sector as a whole, but by my particular work for a few different reasons. The first being that when I got to about 2016 and we just had the Brexit referendum, kind of looked around at everything and thought, I don't think we're actually changing anything. In fact, it seems like things are getting worse. You know, democracy is fracturing. 
um, climate change, like nothing meaningful seems to be happening about climate change. And inequality is fundamentally growing. And all these new charities are popping up, you know, every day to kind of put plasters over the problems, but we're not getting to the root cause. And I felt that the leadership here and, and the environment that I was working in, we were fundamentally disconnected from the problems that we were trying to solve. And day to day, I was putting a lot of bureaucracy and red tape around um, little small processes and things that we were doing day to day. I wasn't actually supporting a, a bigger change. And I think the most fundamental thing was I didn't know how to challenge or change any of that because that wasn't what I'd been brought up to do. You know, I'd, I'd become a very good sort of robot in a, in a sense. I was a really good worker bee. I'd been socially conditioned through my education, through all my work experience to date to just work as hard and as much as possible. Um, I'd been trained to sort of optimize myself within this system. And yet I felt I suddenly realized that the system itself was failing. Um, I was running up a treadmill, trying to work harder because I'd been given the narrative that that would make me more successful and happier. And that wasn't the case anymore. In this post-Brexit, post-financial crash, post-social media world, uh, things were very different. Things were much more complex. And the narrative my parents had given me wasn't the one that I was encountering in the world. But I didn't really know all of that at the time. At the time, I was just really burnt out and tired. And so I did what the only thing I knew how to do, which was to take some time off. I took a, a mini break from the RSA and went off to explore. And that was about the time that I came across Be More Pirate, which is a book written by my colleague and co-pirate, Sam, Sam Conniff, who's a social entrepreneur. He'd spent 20 years working with young people in South London, um, was really invested in the social enterprise business model. Uh, like business for good, but had come to a lot of the same conclusions that I had, that things were not working, the, the idea of more social justice, um, lessening inequality, it was going in the opposite direction. And so all this time and effort he'd spent, it felt he felt that it was amounting to nothing. And so he vented his frustration about that into the book, but also Be More Pirate represented a different spirit of leadership. If traditional leadership was failing, don't we need to look in a more radical and rebellious direction? And that's when he stumbled upon the metaphor of pirates, which we'll get into. But when I came across Be More Pirate, you know, I, I honestly um, was a bit skeptical. Sam had put a job advert out for a right-hand pirate, which was fairly interesting and unusual. But at the same time, I took one look at the front cover and thought, God, is this just a great marketing strategy? You know, is this guy really good at like um, kind of uh, putting together a, uh, like a, a great title, using a great metaphor and how to take on the world and win felt a bit clickbaity to me. So I brought all my cynicism to Sam's doorstep when I interviewed with him. I said, you know, is your book more style over substance? And he just said, I don't know, you tell me. All I know is I'm getting messages from people all around the world saying that they are doing something as a result of the ideas in this book. They are starting rebellions in their workplace. They are, you know, starting new businesses, um, getting together, like breaking the rules. And I don't know what the hell to do with all of it. Um, it feels like a movement is growing or something bigger than just this book. And that sounded like a really interesting starting point. Um, so I came on board, um, still with some some skepticism. I wanted to know that Sam was going to put his money where his mouth was and be really invested in social impact. So we've been on this journey for about three years now. And I started by asking the members of our fledgling community of pirates 
what exactly they were taking from this book. Like, what were the rebellions that they were starting? What rules were they breaking? How do you be a modern pirate? And that resulted in a second book, which I wasn't expecting at all. But it, there was so much substance behind it, it felt very necessary to capture it into a second book. And so we've got all these stories and case studies of our modern pirates. One of the first and most fundamental things that they, the community taught me was really just the power in the narrative itself, in having a story to understand and to understand how to change things, um, drawing on what the pirates did, uh, because we face you know, so much uncertainty now. And truth be told, a lot of the narrative that comes out of charity, and this is probably my first provocation and challenge to you, is those, a lot of charity narratives um, engender feelings of guilt and shame um, because they're highlighting the problems and, and how bad it is. Be More Pirate does the opposite. It's all about giving people a sense of their own power and agency in, in a world that is obviously incredibly difficult and challenging at times. And it seems to give people an avatar or a kind of disguise or a mask to put on. And that was the thing that was allowing them to start to make changes. Unfortunately, we grew up with this idea of pirates, the, uh, the Captain Hook version, the Disney version that has been you know, pushed on the unsuspecting public. Uh, we grow up with these cartoonish, roguish villains who we are taught to believe are only out for themselves. But the truth of pirates is actually quite different. Um, the truth, as ever, is always more nuanced than we, we think. The truth of piracy probably looked a little bit more like this. What Sam does in Be More Pirate is reveal a, a really small sliver of history, actually, um, called the Golden Age of Piracy a period from about 1700 to 1725, which was like the zenith of piracy in the Western world. And it's the sort of truest version of piracy when really just an, a group of ordinary citizens, sailors in the Navy, working class people decided that they just had enough of going out and doing the bidding of an incredibly self-serving establishment. They realized that the game was rigged and if they continued to play by the establishment's rules, they were always going to play to lose. So they decided to completely take a punt and go off and form their own crews and see if they could exist outside of the law completely, which of course comes with many challenges and was not necessarily easier than being in the Navy, although uh, being in the Navy came with, you know, uh, pretty, pretty dire life expectancy. So pirates suddenly found themselves out at sea, um, likely with a crew of 80-odd illiterate strangers carrying swords, and suddenly they had a new dilemma. They had to figure out how to harmonize the crew, how to live and work together in a way that was in almost in direct opposition to the kind of tyranny that they'd experienced in the Navy. So they had this blank slate, um, a moment in time to do things completely differently. And it, this moment in time genuinely changed the world forever and has been somewhat buried in history. But the story is fascinating. First of all, on a pirate ship, you had real diversity. I mean, unbelievably, we're still having this conversation. But pirates were one of the first to be to be truly diverse as a as a team. On the far right here, you'll see a rather sordid depiction of Anne Bonny, who was one of the most famous female pirates. Next to her is Black Caesar, uh, originally an African tribal chief, taken as a slave and then freed by pirates. He was actually part of Blackbeard's crew, who is on the... Uh, the, the next one along and on the far right or left I can't tell whether it's which side it'll be on for you 
we have Black Sam Bellamy, who was the youngest and the richest of pirates, often known as the Robin Hood of the Sea, because he was very committed to social justice. So incredibly uh, diverse crew, which was really important because they then also gave everyone on board an equal say on all the decisions that were made on board. So it was one man, one vote, making a pirate crew more democratic than ancient Greece. They also had dual governance. Um, this is the system that we now see reflected in parliaments and governments all around the world, but the pirates are really the first to do this. And it was all about putting proper checks and balances on power. They'd seen how much power could corrupt in the Navy, so this time they decided to do it differently. They had dual leadership, a captain and a quartermaster. The quartermaster was there to hold the captain to account and be the voice of the crew. So the quartermaster would typically look after things like punishment and the money, and this seemed to work really, really well. Crucially, both of those leadership roles, they could be voted out at any time. So you were never able to steer the crew in a really wrong direction. You could, you were always held accountable. And this is a really, really important distinction. They also had equal and transparent pay for the first time ever. Everyone knew what everyone was getting. A conversation we're again still having. Captain and the quartermaster would typically get two to four times more than the average crew members. And this was, you know, not really a moral um, kind of reasoning. Uh, I'd like to say that it was, but I think that's unlikely. I think that the reason they did this was probably strategic to prevent conflict and mutiny because nothing causes conflict like money. You also had one of the earliest forms of social insurance on board a pirate ship. So if you lost a leg or an eye in a battle, you would get some form of monetary compensation. Again, probably strategic. It was to incentivize people to do the work so that they wouldn't be you know, cowering underneath the deck whenever there was a battle, uh, as they might have done in the Navy, because in the Navy, you would have simply been left for dead. And whilst it probably wasn't a moral um, decision to introduce this, this uh, um, social insurance scheme, I would imagine that it allowed people to feel that their lives were not expendable in the same way that they, they did in the Navy. So still really important. And finally, pirates even had same-sex marriage. Unbelievably, they had a legal and ritual ceremony that was so sophisticated, it had an inheritance clause in it. So if your partner died, you would get their share of the uh, whatever inheritance or whatever treasure you had accumulated together. Incredibly progressive. You might at least imagine that pirates, whilst they, you know, harmonized their own crews and were, were found, found these really innovative ways of working together, they might at least go out and fight each other. But in fact, the opposite was true. Pirates were highly collaborative. When they had to fight a big battle, rather than fight each other for the, the prize, they would actually team up uh, and work together. And then they would scale back down into their independent crews. And this allowed a hell of a lot of dynamism and agility in the way that they worked. And I, I think this is really important because pirates we're pioneering a collaborative economy um, and we still exist in a very uh, competitive one and we haven't figured out how to work together when we have shared goals in a particularly effective way. So there's, there's a lot to take from the way that pirates organised. The way that they differentiated between the, the crews, of course, was through the, uh, the pirate flag, the Jolly Roger, the world's most enduring brand. Um, we often think that the world's first brand was Coca-Cola, but I'd argue it was the Jolly Roger. If you saw the skull and crossbones on the horizon, you'd know to keep well back. Um, and this is again, and this again was a strategic move to um, ward off attacks. You know, they 
deliberately weaponized the story of what it meant to be a pirate and so that it would drive fear into the heart of enemies and that they would immediately surrender whenever they saw the black flag. However, pirates were not nearly as fierce as they made their reputation out to be. A lot of them, like I said, were just ordinary sailors. Um, And they did this, you know, solely for the purpose of preserving their own resources. Why on earth would they want to get into battle if they could avoid it? But what this meant is that pirates were arguably the least violent people on the sea at the time. This is so important when we think about how we um, depict pirates in popular culture um, when, in fact, the opposite was likely true. I hope that convinces you, at least, that pirates were maybe not the troublemakers that you kind of envisage, but were in fact innovators and pioneers. They were incredibly organised, collaborative and creative. And this is a really important thing to understand, is that this was not a destructive rebellion. When I talk about rule-breaking and rebellion, it was not just for chaos. It was not pure rebellion for the sake of it. It was a creative inventive rebellion. It was all about the new rules that they were trying to create, the better alternative. Uh, They turned their frustration into fuel. And the way that they um, kind of nailed down the new pirate law was in something called the Pirate Code, which you probably have heard of, but might not know that it was a really uh, real written document that almost all pirate uh, crews had. They were largely the same. They all had those key uh, new rules around equal pay and equal say. But it was what gave a crew accountability to each other, like real trust and, and sort of transparency about how to behave. And one of the first things that our community of modern pirates um, began doing and the kind of things that they were sending to Sam and I were pirate, uh, pirate codes of their own. Um, I think Sam was so shocked when he saw the first real code come to him. But they were saying things like, you know, we get it. We don't need like complicated policies anymore. We don't need to write a 10-year business plan or strategy. What we need is to understand our values and what we stand for, and then to work out how we translate those values into day-to-day practices and behaviors. And that's really what this is about. It's about closing the gap between your intention and your action through use of a code and holding each other accountable, not through government where the rules are imposed upon you from on high, but through governance where we, we share the rules between us. One of the most sophisticated pirate codes that I got sent was from um, CRIN, the Child's Rights International Network, a a human rights NGO. (laughs) That was about the time we started taking it seriously. Um, But they, you know, reached a a sort of a crisis point of evaluation where the director asked herself, you know, should we really exist? Are we really making that much change or are we just funding ourselves into existence? And doing the exercise of, of doing their code, understanding their values, Um, they got a huge amount of clarity about what they do stand for. And what it did was it pushed them way further towards the edges of their map. Um, This is a a phrase we like to use for sort of innovation, really. Um, Being bolder and being braver about what you do. So going towards the edges of the map for um, Crin was all about launching some bolder campaigns around children's rights, standing out in their sector, so they started campaigning for things like uh, against um, virgin- virginity testing in kids and against the forced sterilization of uh, children with learning disabilities. So quite fringe, quite taboo sort of subjects. And this worked really well for them because it actually increased their funding unbelievably because they were really clear, really bold and quite brave in what they were doing. 
But the edges of the map is a general principle that I'd like to introduce as a sort of practical thing that you could also implement. Um, this is a picture of an old map that they used to have this phrase on, on them, here there be dragons with an arrow pointing off, because that was where the pirates went, into the darkness, the unknown at the edges. Um, and in the darkness, in the uncharted unknown terrain, there's two things. There's dragons, fear, and there is treasure. There's opportunity. And this is about turning fear into opportunity. And I usually give people three basic questions to, un to understand how they might venture off the edges of their own map. The first is to ask, what is off your edges? What things are unspoken or unsaid in your organization or your sector? What's taboo? Because in that tension, in that resistance, there's opportunity. If other people aren't touching it, you can be the first. Who is off the edges of your map? Who are you not engaging with? What people, demographics are completely off your radar, but could give you a completely different perspective on your current challenges or problems? And where is off the edges? What places and spaces are you not going into? Environment has such a big impact on our mindset. Uh, I think we underestimate that. And that was something that I definitely experienced working in an office for a really long time. I was not only disconnected from the, the people and the problems that I was thinking about day in, day out, but I wasn't inspired, you know? So get, get out, get out into the world and allow it to inform you. Now I wanna make this, these three questions more real um, because they can feel a little bit abstract. So here's a quick story of uh, Macmillan, a, a charity that have taken this idea of the edges of the map and really made it work. So the London team at Macmillan had undergone a really brilliant um, project for a few, uh, back in 2017, looking at cancer inequalities across London. And they'd formed this big community as a part of it. They'd really engaged with a wide demographic. One day, a young woman from their uh, community, a young artist, she was 28, came forward and said, there's one subject that I can't get any information about from Macmillan, and it's sex. Not just sex for fertility, sex for pleasure. You know, I'm a young person and cancer dismantles your body. Um, after you've had cancer, things feel different. And I want to understand, you know, what I could do to support myself. Not only will the nurses um, not give me any information, they don't actually know where to signpost me. It's clearly a bit of a taboo issue. So she said, I'd love to look into this. They decided together to survey the rest of the community and see if anyone else was feeling this way. And it turns out that they were. What happened as a result, they partnered with a sex shop in East London, called Sh which is in, in this picture, and decided to run a sex and cancer workshop inside for these women. I'm told that that event was an incredibly moving and transformative experience, um, allowing people to really open up about how cancer had affected their relationships, their relationships with their bodies. Um, and it opened up Macmillan to a whole new avenue um, that was really going to support their community. But it wouldn't have happened had they not gone to the edges. And it fulfills all the criteria. It came from a person who was at the edges, someone who was young, who represented a marginalized minority perspective within the community. It was a taboo subject, so an unspoken thing. And they took it into a non-clinical environment, which really affected what people felt they were able to say. So really, really important to try and venture off the edges of the map to find your alternatives, to find your creative rebellion. 
However, as Sam and I started doing lots of workshops on how to be more private, there was one thing we really noticed when we were asking people to rewrite their rules. And that was that they went too vague and too big with them to begin with. So instead of using the language of rewriting the rules, we began talking instead about small, bold actions. Um, the biggest barrier to change we noticed was this collective belief that change was impossible. And that came from feeling very demotivated and distracted. And that happens when you set your ambitions too high or too big too, too soon. So a small, bold action is um, something that allows you to break down your new rule or your ambition. It's something that is logistically easy to achieve in the next week. So something that's not going to involve lots of people or be very complex. Could just be sending an email. But it's something that feels a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Ideally in that sweet spot between fear and excitement, where you feel a little bit nervous about doing it. And even better, if you can make it repeatable, um, you will compound the impact of the small bold action. So at the end of every workshop, we're always trying to get people to commit not to writing a new rule, but to doing a small bold action instead. One, I want to share one example of this, again, to make it real from our community. And this, like the story of Macmillan, is in the book, How to Be More Pirate. This comes from a small crew who went undercover at a local authority, a big local authority in the UK, where they had a mandate for culture change, but realized if they went through the usual channels, they weren't going to get very far. So they started meeting in a cafe down the road instead and asking, you know, what, what kind of things should we be changing? What kind of things really drag us down? What are the the current rules or norms that, that aren't working. And they came, they hit upon email. Now we all suffer from email overload. Um, it's one of the curses of modern, the modern workplace. So they go, okay, well, how could we challenge that? How could we rewrite the rules, um, of email culture by doing a small bold action? And this is what they came up with. They came up with four points. Thinking before I email, can I have a conversation instead? Taking protected time away from email to focus on the stuff that makes a biggest difference. Checking my tone, am I structuring in a way I'd be pleased to receive? If it's bad news, I won't deliver it by email. These were their new rules of email culture, but the small bold action came when they decided to put these four bullet points as part of their own email signature, so that every time they sent an email in the organization, they got this message across, uh, which felt bold because they were, you know, putting Be More Pirate at the top and breaking the tyranny of emails. For people who liked emails, that was a bit of a challenge. Um, but it, re it, was, it was repeatable and it reinforced the new cultural narrative that they wanted to create consistently. And that made a big difference. So my final parting question to you is, what is the small, bold move you could make? If you can come up with something that you could execute within the next week that could start to move the needle on a big ambition that you have. Um, that is the first step as to how you could become more pirate. And I would say this to end, a small bold action, whilst they're useful in actually creating outcomes, when you start doing this, try not to focus too much on the result because what they actually do um, is change you. The act of taking a risk, taking a chance on yourself, going outside of your norm will change you. And that is the real difference you want to make. Because as I always say, the inner rebellion begets the outer. 
Um, standing up to yourself is one of the hardest things you can do, but it is the first and most essential step to becoming more pirate. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.